Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's time for Come and Talk It with your host, Michael Cargill, brought to you by Texas Law Shield. Over the last decade, Michael has championed and supported the rights of law-abiding Texans to own and use firearms. He is the owner of Central Texas Gunworks, a veteran of the United States Army, and has achieved national exposure in such prestigious media outlets such as Forbes Magazine, Fox Business News, CNN Money, AOL, BBC World News, Huffington Post, and the New York Times. Cargill vigorously defends lawful gun ownership in this country without regard to party politics. And now, here's Michael Cargill. Good day, Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. You're here with us on Come and Talk It. Got a good show today. We're going to have Lauren LeCount for Texas Senate District 17 on the show. We're also going to have Charles Cotton, board member of the NRA. Uh, In case you haven't noticed, I'm not Michael Cargill. My name's Zach History. And I'm filling in. So, yeah. Well, in a couple minutes. A couple minutes. Let's see. Yeah. We got some news. Kim Jong. Yeah, we're not as ex- exciting. Okay, Michael, what? take it. Take it. What did Kim Jong Il do? <laughs> You're going to believe this. What do you do? What do you do? He's hungry. He is, quote, looking to bring McDonald's and a Trump-branded hotel to Pyongyang to secure <laughs> I'm security you, and he investment. He had some McDonald's with Trump because you've seen how much McDonald's Trump eats. Uh, have you seen Kim? Kim has not missed McDonald's, let me tell you. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm sure he probably has his own private McDonald's somewhere in his palace. Somewhere. Oh, he did. Yes, he, yes. Probably he, a burger, he's bigger than he's I He's probably got a Burger King and everything else in there. He's got a McDonald's Burger King. Uh, he's got <laughs> McRibs all year round. Unlike us, we only get it one time a year. All right, so yeah, that's right. Today we're going to have Charles Cotton. He's the uh, board member for the NRA. We're also going to have, he's also a moderator for Texas Gun Talk. So we're going to talk with Charles. We're going to find out from Charles what actually, you know, what took place. How how did things go down back in 1995 when 46.13 uh, to make to make sure that kids could not get access to firearms. We're going to find out from, from Charles about that. And we're going to find out some history because Charles was back there when everything was going down. He was there from the beginning, and he can tell us, you know, what happened. He's been with the legislature for decades, and he's also, I believe, I'm going to have to ask Charles about this. I believe he actually was the executive director for the Texas State Rifle Association. Don't quote me on that. But he's not in that capacity here today. He's only in the capacity of a private citizen to tell us, you know, some history of what was going on back in the legislature during that time frame. So I want to find out about that. Also, we're going to talk with Lauren LeCount. She's actually a candidate who's running for Texas Senate District 17. And she's running against uh, Senator Joan Huffman. I'm going to talk about that because there's some stuff going on there. And we got to find out what's happening in that race. Now, there are a couple of different things that the governor has suggested. And one of those things is a school marshal program. 
And so that people understand the school marshal program, what that is, that's House Bill 1009. It passed by the 83rd legislature. It allows public school districts and open enrollment charter schools to appoint school marshals. And the 84th legislature passed the Senate Bill 366 to include public two-year junior colleges in the list of institutions that can appoint school marshals. Now, what this does is it actually, the program is actually controlled by TCOL, which is the law enforcement organization. And so if a person wants to become a school marshal, they actually have to go through a, a long course, a week-long course at TCOL, 80 hours, as a matter of fact. There's two different programs, though. There's a school marshal the school marshal program is actually kind of confined uh, with the school marshal program. You actually have to if you have a gun in the school, you got to lock it up in a lockbox. But then there's a school safety program, the school safety officer with that one. That's taught by LTC instructors. And with that one, that's a two day program. And that person is actually able to keep the firearm on them. And that would apply to teachers. Yeah, actually. Yeah, both of them do. The school marshal program, what it does, it's uh, the appointment entity selects candidates for school marshal by candidates must be an employee of the school or college, not just a teacher. The candidate must have a valid license to carry issued through the Texas Department of Public Safety. The candidate must pass a psychological exam and TCOL will provide this form and the candidates attend complete TCOL approved 80 hour school marshal course. So we need no new laws is what you're saying. Yeah. You got to know the laws. Absolutely. So it's on our school districts now. Everyone's saying I'll need to do something on the state level. It's on the school districts now. Honestly, ever since 1995, school districts have have been able to they've actually been able to give the, the authority to give written permission to anyone to carry at a school ever since 1995. So we didn't need any special laws or we didn't need the school so marshal all, program. All this blood is on the school district's hands. At Absolutely. This point. Well, you said that I didn't. But ever since 1995. Every, in, it's in Penal Code Section 46.03, paragraph 1, very last line, says the institution has the authority to give written permission to anyone to carry. Okay, so that's at this point we need something done, and it's stop talking about it and do something. You can do something on the local level. If you can, do it. It's yeah. on you now. It, crap will get off the pot. That's what you're saying, right? Yes. Okay, I hear you. Crap will get off the pot. That's what he's saying over there. I think so. All right, well, let's bring into the conversation Charles Cotton. Charles, welcome to Come and Talk It, sir. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely, sir. All right, so, Charles, let's let's go back. Well, first, before we go back a little bit, let me ask you this, because, you know, Florida. Florida has actually, you know, imposed some, you know, gun control measures. And I never thought in a million years of Florida I would actually be sitting here and and Florida's one of those states, and I say this as many times as I possibly can, Florida's that state that actually competed with Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama with different laws that, you know, you know what, what, what can we come up with this session to give, you know, gun, gun owners more rights? Instead, this year, they came up with gun control and actually raised the age limit for all firearm sales in the state of Florida. So is this something that we have to look forward to with the state of Texas come January 2019, between January and June? This is something we're going to have to deal with, but I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Uh, it, it seems to be a hot-button issue right now, but there are some serious constitutional problems with with what they're trying to do. Now, raising the, the uh, age in 46.13, the Texas version of the self-store, uh, safe storage law, 
that doesn't raise any constitutional issues, but there are a, there are a, a litany of problems with doing that. And you know, I don't know if we're going to get into that today or not, but uh, if you want to, we can talk about those. Oh, absolutely. We're, we're, we're going to have to fight this, but I think it's going to be a successful fight. The worst thing about it is we're going to burn a lot of political capital fighting uh, any gun laws, which could very well make this less than productive in terms of passing pro-gun bills. Why do you say that, Charles? Every time you, you kill a major opposition bill, uh, it, it burns political capital. And this this time, because of all the focus on the proposals that you've heard, the things that are likely to come out of the interim studies, are going to be putting pressure on people in Austin, elected officials, to do something. Well, there's something that we're going to want them to do is nothing at all. We don't even want a vote in committee, much less uh, getting it through uh, the House calendar's or to the floor on a 19 vote uh, uh, on a bill in the Senate. So that's the reason I say it's going to take it's going to take some political capital. If it's a meaningless bill, we kill those things every session, and it doesn't use up any political capital because it's not it's not something that gets on the news every night. Okay, now let's before we get into that. Because uh, I want to come back to that because that's actually very important because people need to understand how this process actually works and how, the, you know, how we actually get things done and accomplished in a session. So there's one thing that actually scares me the most, and that is, you know, changing our existing laws and going back because our existing laws in the state of Texas, I think personally, work great. We have great laws here. We have a great program. We have a great License to carry handgun program. And so whenever we change anything to that, you know, I'm starting, you know, I'm feeling a little concerned now about it. And this year is the first year I've actually, you know, felt that way. And that is Penal Code Section 46.13. Um, and that is uh, where we control access to firearms by by kids or children. And currently right now, it says that if you're under the age of 17, you cannot, you know, have access to a firearm except for a certain, you know, some certain exceptions. And so I'd like for you to talk about that a little bit and what the actual what 46.13 actually says currently. 46.13 is, again, our our version of the Texas safe storage law. It was passed in a standalone bill. It was HB 44 in 1995, the same year we passed Senate Bill 60 to create concealed carry. From, from the get-go, and I, there's some information, I mean, there's some you know, backroom dealing that, that got that bill passed uh, as part of a deal, really, to get concealed carry passed, because at the time, there was so, I mean, it's a standard parade of horribles that we always hear, but one of them was, well, if you pass this concealed carry law, so many more people are going to be getting guns that wouldn't have otherwise had them. And we're going to have kids getting killed because they find you know, mom or dad's gun that they wouldn't otherwise have. Of course, my response, you know, while waving a Texas flag is that this is Texas. We've already got the guns, folks. But that's, <laughs> that's really how that bill got started. And what it does is, as you mentioned, if any person that leaves a statutorily defined readily dischargeable firearm where a child, quote unquote child, that is anyone under age 17, could get to it, then, if the child did get to it, there was that was a committed that was a completed crime. 
Now, how bad it is depends upon what happens when the quote-unquote child gets the gun. If nobody's hurt, it's a Class A misdemeanor, no big deal, kind of like a traffic ticket. If somebody gets hurt, then it's a Class A misdemeanor. Now, it is rarely used because it's just it doesn't happen that often. Uh, contrary to what what the anti-gun forces are trying to pitch this for this upcoming session, it was never intended to be an anti-crime bill. It was it was intended to prevent firearms accidents, not prevent the criminal misuse of firearms. Mm. And that's how they're trying to twist it. Okay, because I know that they've only had a, like very small, minute amount of cases since this bill went into effect back in 1995 that actually have been prosecuted under 46.13. And have the rates of it gone up at all? No, no, no. It's, it's just a very small, minute amount of you know cases have been used actually for this. The number I've heard, Michael, and I don't know if it's right or not, uh, but the number I've heard is like 20 in 20 years. And of those 20 prosecutions, only 65 or so were convicted. Mm. So the law itself... The, the law itself has never been very effective. It, it just isn't because everybody's got the same problem, other guy syndrome. Well, no, my kid's not going to get the gun or whatever. Mm. But on the flip side of that is the firearms accident rate has been plummeting over that same 20 years. So it's arguable that it's not even needed from a, from a firearms accident position. But the problem I've got with the bill I, I had the problem from the get-go, and I, it's even worse if you raise the age to 18 and if you make uh, the, the offense a third-degree felony. And that is for every person, young person, who gets a hold of a gun and misuses that gun, either to hurt themselves or someone else intentionally or accidentally, for everyone that does that, you've got hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of kids, what we used to call latchkey kids, that have to stay at home alone while mom and or dad are at work. Could be single single parent uh, families or m- mom and dad both work. So what you're saying? So what you're saying is, if you know, if I'm that that rebel kid, you know, and I'm pissed off at my parents and I want to get them in trouble, you know, like this kid we have here in in Austin who actually took a hit out on his father, had his father killed. Instead of doing that, all he needs to do really is grab one of his dad's guns and commit a crime with it. And his dad would prosecute it. Or what about the suicidal kid that they've tried, they've tried and hurt themselves, fail, and then you're going to stick them at home by themselves? And you're talking about a felony. You're talking about a you said third degree felony. That is third third degree felony. So if this were to pass, two terrible things would happen. Number one, I've got a ten year old granddaughter. Mm. Let's say three, four years from now, she's thirteen, fourteen, maybe fifteen years old. She sits at home while mom and dad are at work or someplace else. She is absolutely defenseless. For what reason? Because we might accidentally, and I'd say that term, uh, use that term intentionally, right. might accidentally prevent one kid in a million mm. that would actually gain access and misuse a firearm. It, it's unfair to the hundreds of thousands of, of teenagers that are home alone to render them defenseless. In, in Houston, about three years ago, there was a celebrated case where a 15-year-old boy happened to be the son of a uh, deputy constable. A 15-year-old boy was at home with his 12-year-old sister when three home invaders kicked the door in, came in with guns, and and the 15-year-old boy grabbed his dad's AR-15, shot one of the uh, home invaders, 
and the other two ran off. He was protecting himself and his 12-year-old, his 12-year-old sister. And the reason dad couldn't be prosecuted, well, he could be prosecuted, it'd be a defense. But the reason he wasn't is one of the several defenses to the current safe storage law is that the, the child, quote unquote, used the firearm in lawful self-defense. Well, you know, let's be honest about it. That's nothing more than no harm, no foul. So why in the world would we intentionally continue to have this, this statute that puts latchkey kids at risk? I mean, that's absurd. We're talking with Charles Cotton. He's the moderator for Texas Gun Talk. He's also an attorney. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It. Hey, this is AWR Hawkins, Breitbart News, and you're listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. Thanks for making the right choice. I don't know where I would get the truth if it weren't for you. Talk 1370. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. That's right. Some people want, you know, they want the neighborhood to look the same. They want everyone, they want to control everything that's going on inside your home. But you know what? We're here to resist. You know, I'm here to say no. You know what? I want to control what happens in my four walls. You know, so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about guns. We're talking about the Second Amendment. Because I, I truly believe more guns will equal less crime. So now we're, we're talking with Charles Cotton. And he's, uh, Charles is an attorney. He's actually the narrator for uh, Texas Gun Talk. Which is a, which is an online blog that you know a lot of different topics. If you want to learn about the the handgun law, you want to you know discuss there are a lot of different topics. You can actually find them on Texas Gun Talk. And so Charles has actually explained to us about forty six dot thirteen, allowing a child to get access to a firearm and, and how that came about. So let me ask Charles. Charles, let me ask you this: What was the argument? And how did this come about back in 1995? What was the justification for getting 46.13 passed? Like I said, when, when we were pushing for uh, concealed carry, and, and if you recall, we actually passed the bill in, in um, 93. And that was vetoed by uh, then-Governor Ann Richards. So we've been fighting this battle uh, for, for four years anyway. And there was... So much concern, literally, that a bunch of Texans would be getting guns for the first time, and there was a fear that the guns would be laying around when folks weren't out carrying them and the kids were going to get a hold of them. Right, blood and in the street. Every stop sign, every red light, every time you come up to it, people just going to be shooting each other. All kinds of things are going to happen. You're exactly right. That It was part of the parade of horribles that, that they were pitching. Suicide rates were going to go up, every, as you just mentioned. Every fender bender was going to be a gunfight. I mean, it was, it was crazy. But let's face it, the folks on the opposite side of the Second Amendment either don't learn or, or, or don't care because we heard exactly the same thing. Well, we heard that with, with concealed carry. We heard it again uh, in, in 2007. When we passed the Motorist Protection Act, it allowed people to have handguns in their cars without a license. Whenever we've talked about removing all of the uh, off-limits areas for licensees now that we know after 20-plus years of history with uh, concealed carry, 
that they're not necessary. It's the same parade of horrible. It's always intentional conduct and kids are going to get killed. Now, there, there was a story because someone actually testified and, and there was some type of story that was brought up um, doing this, uh, I guess, for this actual particular bill. And you I think you remember the bill number and all that good kind of stuff. Yeah, it was House Bill 44. And I've got to, I've got to admit, Mike, I don't remember the specific testimony. OK, uh, I thought you were going to thought you were going to be talking about the uh, uh at best, uh, misleading testimony that was given mm. last session concerning uh, a couple of pro-gun bills. But uh, that was a lady that claimed her son had a bunch of guns uh, and she knew that he wasn't mentally fit and shouldn't have them. And the police allegedly told her that they couldn't do anything about it. And lo and behold, he murdered his dad, mm. which all of that, you know, well, the latter part was true. What she didn't leave or what she left out of her testimony, though, was that he didn't shoot his dad. He beat him and beat him with a steel pipe and stabbed him with a knife. Oh, and, wow. uh, of course, there was some other false testimony. Uh, Kelly Burke. The, and this, you, the, you're saying this was last session? Either last session or the session before. Oh, wow. I can't, okay. I can't remember which one. I wrote an article on it. I also wrote an article about Kelly Burke, who is apparently a city councilwoman with, um, oh, is it West U or something like that? You know, she testified uh, under oath, as we all do, that all this talk that we, we give about uh, licensees being the most honorable, I mean, most uh, law-abiding segment among Texans was just, it was a lie because all that information is locked down. You can't get it. And I wrote an article about that one, too, which it was kind of funny when she was saying it because I couldn't help but laugh because I had already uh, given out the statistics that I keep tracking all this stuff, using DPS information as well as other information that I gained. And every member of the committee that she was testifying to uh, knew the truth because they had my, my report in front of them. Oh, wow. And you know what? I did this event yesterday, and it was uh, your choice, your voice. And it was uh, part of the, the Indian-American community. And so they had a, a, a little discussion on, on, gun, on guns. And actually, there was a, ye- a lady there that actually had this... This little thing that she brought up, um, which I thought it was a good program, which pretty much she talked about, look, if, you know, you have a gun, lock it up, you know, which makes sense. And everything she said makes perfectly good sense. You have a gun, lock it up. Uh, educate your kids, you know, you know, you know and, and pretty much follow the Eddie Eagle program that the NRA has. And I, I thought it was actually a pretty good program. And th- but then she told me this story that blew me away and how she got into you know, being into this fight. And she said that her son, who was, I believe, a, um, he was in college, got access to his friend's gun. They were talking about it, showing the gun or something like that. And he went to grab the gun. When he grabbed the gun, he actually pulled the trigger and shot himself. And so, hmm. you know, and and I, I felt really bad. I didn't want to tell her, you know, that was a, you know, that was a negligent discharge. And so and that, what, what we need to do is we need to educate, you know, our young, educate our kids on firearms and the fact that you don't, you know, don't point the gun at yourself or anyone else unless you intend to kill or destroy them. Do not put your finger on the trigger, you know. Uh, so, there, you know, there are different things that we need to focus on, and I, I felt really bad, and I understand why she got into this fight, you know, but I also can see why that happened, you know. So it's just, just one of those things, you know, you hear the different stories that different people tell you, 
and it's just you know it, it hurts you to the core but you know we really need to follow the the different safety steps and we really need to as parents need to educate our kids on safety and gun safety and just everything around and be parents be that guardian you know well the problem that we're seeing that at least what i anticipate uh, for this upcoming session and we're seeing in some of the uh the media outlets and stuff like that with the anti-gun groups is they're trying to they're trying to meld firearms accident prevention with crime prevention and those are two totally different subjects that require two totally different approaches i mean i agree with with pretty much everything that's in excuse me in the governor's plan in in terms of hardening schools putting more armed personnel in schools now he wants to amend the uh, the current school marshal program, and I, I agree with his changes, but I would go further than that, quite frankly. But when it comes to, to 4613, that has nothing to do with crime prevention, and we need to set, set that one aside and look at what really works in terms of schools. And as, as much as most of us, me included, hate to admit, we can't stop the desire to kill people and mass killings. Mm. We, we can do something to help uh, the attempt, but what we can do is prevent its successful attempt, and that requires hardening of schools, but it also requires more armed personnel, mm. and that's something that emotionally a lot of people just can't stand. The school marshal program, as you mentioned in the early early parts of this, this segment, it's got too many restrictions, and also, as you mentioned, for years, for decades, schools have had the authority to allow people carry guns there in, yes. in school, and there are who knows how many former military, how many retired uh, or separ- otherwise separated uh, peace officers that would be more than happy to help. Plus, there's we have something approaching a million and a half licensees now, people with a license to carry a handgun. Not all of those folks would, would want to participate, nor would all of them have the appropriate training at this point. But those are so many resources that could be relied upon. Now, in order to do that, uh, outside of the school marshal program, we, we do need a piece of legislation. We need to duplicate in 2019 what we did in 2017 for churches, and that is we need to exempt people with a license to carry a handgun from the Texas Private Security Act if they are providing voluntary uh, security for schools. Mm. That we did that last year for churches, so that they could, so that uh, volunteer church security could be armed. Right now, although schools have the authority to let anyone that they authorize carry their firearms on school, if their sole purpose or if their primary purpose is providing security, then they must comply with the Texas Private Security Act, which means they got to get licensed as a security guard. They got to be working through a company that is a licensed security company. So there are a lot of hurdles there that need to be removed just as we did for churches. Now, my quick question is, because I've got a unique church that we meet in a school. So would that kind of apply? And how would you apply that? Would it be the school model or the church model for a Sunday? I'm asked this question quite a bit. And my <laughs> answer there, and it's, it's, either one, it's either one of two things. Either the scenario that you mentioned, you've got a church meeting on school grounds in a school building, or you have a church that also has a school incorporated with it, which is the situation with my church. 
a school is always a school. Mm-hmm. So yep. you can't carry there unless the school is going to give you permission to do it on Sundays during your services. And if that- that's the case, then then the person, a private, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, volunteer security personnel like our safety team could provide could provide armed uh, safety personnel during the church service. But other, without that uh, written permission, it is a school even on Sunday. Right. The flip side, when you've got a church that has a, a school in it during the week, well, those buildings are not a quote-unquote school except when kids are there, especially if the church owns all the property. All right, and I always tell people that if it's a school, it's a, if it's a school, it's always a school, you know, and you're Correct. just having that activity, the church there, you know, on that particular day. And just exactly the way you just explained it. Yeah. And now, you know, Charles, you know, I, I enjoy having you on because you're, you, you give us some insight, you know, of of the laws and, and things like that. Um, but let me ask, let me have my panel. I know they got some questions for you. Um, you guys got some questions for Charles? Oh, I just want to say, remember, yeah, we can't change the desire to kill Um legislatively but we can do something about it culturally it will still always be there but we can do something about it (laughs) i I could not agree with you more i mean it's almost it's almost a trite thing because i've seen it so much and frankly said it myself (laughs) people point at me and say you're you're showing your age charles when i was in high school during the dust season a lot of us had shotguns in our cars because we got out at three o'clock and there's plenty of time to make the afternoon the afternoon dove hunt Guns were accessible in, in my home. They were, you're just as likely to see a 45 automatic and some kind of revolver laying on our coffee table when I was growing up as you would at a TV guide magazine. <laughs> what has changed is not the availability of guns. What has changed is the heart of, of society, and you, I could not agree with you more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my family, we had a while. We had a gun at the back door ready for coyotes if we ever saw them because they had just gotten so bad in our neighborhood. <laughs> all right yeah, now, it, go ahead charles no i'm just i'm just gonna say you're right it it guns have the availability of guns hasn't changed it's it, the people have changed and you don't have to look far to see why now charles if what would you do to secure schools you know if you if you were governor you know what would you suggest i would harden the schools in terms of and, and some of it would be expensive some of it's not but i would harden the classrooms such that uh, all classrooms are always locked and that there is some way to lock the door uh, from from the inside easily so that no one could pull it out. That takes care of the classrooms that doesn't already have a shooter in it, okay? And that's the one thing that we can't change, is if you let the shooter get in the class, if it's one of the students in the class, that one's a whole lot tougher. Absent an armed person in that classroom, it's going to it's going to it's going to be a bad situation. Yeah, and we and we uh, actually tested out some school guard glass uh one time for one of the news outlets. I think it was a KVU a KI where we actually you know shot like every caliber we can think of, you know, from 22 all the way up to man, um I think we did 308. And so we we even did machine guns and tested out this glass so that we would see how long it would actually take for this glass to fail until law enforcement got there. And so you're right. There, there are a bunch of different things you can do. School guard glass. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that you could do to harden the school. Um, yeah, I kind of, I've got to admit, I, when you start talking about 
Well, talking about metal detectors, I think all of the hours I've wasted in uh, airport security, to be honest with you, because I travel a lot, or at least I used to have to travel a heck of a lot. But the truth is, if you do something like that to keep them from getting in. But here's here's the threat that I think until Santa Fe, a lot of people didn't take seriously. Mm. And that is somebody pulling the fire alarm or simply waiting until class changes and then getting these kids out when they're when they're changing classes, that is an extremely difficult uh, thing to deal with. Now, the fire alarm system, I know in our church, now we've you know, we just spent a bunch of money on our church, but in our church we have an automated fire alarm system. But there's a control panel and someone sitting there, and they can say, okay, where did it go off, and is there really any indication of a fire, a fire, or did somebody just pull it? And I think. Schools need to, if I were designing a brand new school, there would not be a classroom that doesn't have two exits Mm. because having to trap kids in there, okay, if we can make it safe, great. But my biggest fear, and I'm I'm almost hesitant to say this on the air for fear of somebody listening, but (laughs) my biggest fear is that people start using bombs rather than firearms. Well, and that's my concern with um, using metal detectors too, is you create those choke points and... You know, when do these shootings normally happen? It's normally the beginning of the day when people are – so it could just shift to when people are coming in. That's true. And and, and you're right. I mean, I say that if the goal is to keep the shooter from ever getting inside the class and starting their rampage inside the class, then you've got to have some some method of screening. But you're right. But what's the cost? Like when you're weighing the cost, would you rather – if it's going to happen, is a classroom of 20 – or the whole front of the school with 120, 300 kids? I mean, Tactically, you're, you're exactly right. And as, if we were you know, in a military operation, we'd have to understand that. But trying to, trying to sell a lower body count to the public is so tough because people, people just don't want to accept reality. And reality is we live in a society where some people want to do this. Now, at the end of the day, what I would, what I think is the greatest deterrent of all, I don't think we're going to sell to every school uh, district, and that is more armed personnel. Yes. Uh, this, I mean, that that is where that's where the true ability to defend students lies. Yeah. Not machinery, do- not not hardened facilities. Someone that can take out the shooter. A, a very good friend of mine. I uh, just retired from the Houston Police Department. Hey, hold that thought, Charles. When we come back from the break, I'm going to have you finish that thought because I want to ask you about that, you know, adding more security. Ask you about elementary schools, middle schools, because we have security. We have police officers in high schools. We have some in middle schools, but none in elementary schools. And so I'm going to ask you about that and ask you to finish your thought. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk. This is Coley on the War, and you're listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cardell. The right choice for breaking news first. Talk 1370. The right choice. Today I don't feel like doing anything. I just want to lay in my bed. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now, here's Michael Cargill. I 
don't feel like doing anything. I just want to get back in bed. <laughs> I should do that. What do you think? Just kick my feet up and just lay back and just chill. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Push the microphone that way. Push the microphone that way? Okay. All right. So we're talking with Charles Cotton. He's uh, Charles is an attorney. He's also – and Charles, let me ask you this. Were you the – Former, you're, you're an executive director for the Texas State Rifle Association at one time, right? Way back when? Yeah, I was. Uh, I served as the executive director for one year, a one year term. Uh, took a uh, kind of a, a one year sabbatical for my law practice and did that for a year. And don't ask me which one because <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. All right. So you're talking about we're talking about law enforcement, and because in the high schools, you know, we have a resource officer. Uh, the middle schools, you know, that same officer actually goes to the middle school and the elementary school. So typically they hang out at the high school, the elementary school. You know, our babies are not being protected. And I'm going to put the onus of protecting our kids on the school because the school has the authority to give written permission for anyone to carry on school property. They have that authority ever since 1995. And so when is a school going to get serious about protecting the babies? That's an excellent question. I wish I had an equally excellent answer. Uh, there are a number of, of school districts uh, in Texas that do that, that they arm their staff, uh, their support staff, not just the, just the teachers. They typically are smaller districts or districts that are somewhat outlined in terms of the response time for law enforcement. But your big city, um, your big city districts like HISD, Houston, or Dallas ISD, I think politics comes into play, and I find that despicable that they would put politics ahead of the safety of their kids. Uh, what I started to mention earlier before the break. A good friend of mine was with the Houston Police Department for 36 years. 23 years of that was SWAT, with as a uh, SWAT uh, team leader and as an instructor. And they do a, a lot of training, an awful lot of training. In fact, for a large uh, agency, they have a very small number of SWAT guys, and that gives them a tremendous amount of experience. And he and I were talking about the school shooter situation. This was even before... Uh, before Santa Fe, after Parkland, before Santa Fe. And he said, Charles, the one thing that is common in almost every single school school shooting situation or mass shooting situation, not just schools, and that is once the, the mass murderer is confronted with any kind of armed resistance, they typically either shoot themselves or surrender. Mm. It is rare that you have a mass murder that actually engages in a, in a firefight with anyone. Now, ironically, uh, the shooter in Santa Fe did, but only for a very short time. He didn't exchange much gunfire. Uh, the situation in Sutherland Springs with the church, it was not a school, it was a church situation there. As soon as the guy had someone uh, shooting at him, and actually, by the way, the guy that, that shot this guy was quite the marksman to be able to hit between the uh between the uh the body armor but anyway he did he shot him between uh the shoulder between the uh, armpit uh gap and that put the guy in the truck and he took off so it's not when i hear arguments like well there's going to be this extended gunfight i mean they they try to generate 
old scenes from Black Hawk Down or something where you have this long running gunfight with a lot of innocents being caught in a crossfire. That's not that's not the reality. Mm. That's not the reality of what happens. And that's the reason I say that more armed um, security type personnel is it's not a, it's, it's not a complete answer. It's not a guarantee of anything. But it, I believe, gives the greatest chance to, to preserve as many lives as possible. Yeah, and if I was a teacher and I was armed and it did come down to a gunfight, I would rather have that shooter shooting at me with me shooting back at him than just continuing on his rampage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when we're talking about armed teachers, that's an area where you're talking about defending the classroom. I was I was in the first of two pilot courses that DPS put on for the school safety class that uh, licensees can take, and it's as its name would imply is designed to teach teachers how to protect the classroom. And it's not all shooting. It's and it's not the you know run hide fight either. It's how do you secure the classroom? What can you do? And that varies a lot. I mean, if you've got if you've got a high school class and you got a bunch of you got a bunch of boys in there that six feet and 200 pounds, they can provide a whole lot more assistance in securing the classroom than if you're teaching a bunch of first graders who, when they're terrified, are going to grab a hold of the teacher's leg. Right. And DPS goes into that kind of stuff. You add a, a, a firearm to that mix where a teacher actually has a chance that if, if a would-be mur- uh, mass murder does get into the classroom, despite all your best efforts, they have a chance to... to protect the kids right because people, people have this myth they have this myth that we're training people to be one-armed security teams trained to clear entire building and that's not the case we're saying that this gun is your very last option and your job is not to go out searching for a shooter your job is to secure that classroom and if that shooter does get into that classroom you're to stop that threat you're exactly right i mean the goal is protect that one classroom their entire realm of responsibility is those 15, 20, 30 kids, whatever it is, inside that one room. And if every one of those rooms can be locked down, great. It, that leaves the shooter out in the hall for, that, that the cops can deal with a whole lot easier. But you're exactly right. Everybody that's on the opposite side of this has visions of, of some 75-year-old four foot eleven teacher running down the hall with a pistol trying to look for the bad guy. And that, that's unrealistic. That's not what, that's not what the intent is. I mean, we need and to clear. When people argue that, you know, well, they don't have sufficient training to do this. How many times do we see the evening news mm. where someone 65, 70, 75 years old uses a firearm for the first time in their entire life to shoot a, a hijacker or a, a home invader? And they do just fine without SWAT training. So people that make up these arguments won't take the time or they like the desire to look at the facts how how are firearms routinely used in self-defense right now right because even in the school safety program they're firing over 200 rounds you know you're oh, just, yeah. you're you're going through some training and and we're going to oh, make yeah, sure that absolutely. you can you can actually fire that gun you can you're going to fire from different distances and everything so it's not like you know they're just learning how to shoot for the first time no not at all and you're right it, it it's it's a lot more to it than people would have you believe. But at the end of the day, yes, I'd like to see every teacher that is willing to be armed. I started to say wants to be armed, but that's that's a bad choice of words. Uh, no one wants to have to shoot somebody. Right. But well, for every every teacher that is willing to be armed, I think should be. And that's not enough. I think they must rely upon volunteers. 
as uh, as luck would have it, before Santa Fe, I had written a bill for the 2019 session that would require chur- uh, churches, uh, require schools to do one of two things. They would have two options. One option, hardening of the schools, hiring a, a, a security-type personnel, be they um, off-duty officers or through a security company and have a certain ratio and all that, or option B, accept volunteers, accept oh. those who have a license to carry. But in order for that to apply, that bill would also have to amend the Private Security Act. But there are so many good people that would be willing to to volunteer a day a week, two days a week, whatever, to their school to protect those kids. And as you mentioned earlier, we can protect everything, including the elementary school. And let's we, have- just need, we need to change the law to make it possible. And let's have those kids trained as well to deal with it without a firearm, how to deal with an assailant, because they should be able to deal with it instead of cowering in the corner. They should be able to know how to go out there and defend themselves and understand it's, this is reality. And, you know, you have teachers in there. They have their codes. They have everything else that when there is an assailant in a school, they have their code. They'll know the word, and then they can have a bead right on that door for if anyone comes in. Yeah. I mean, you're right. And the older the kid... You know, the greater the greater resistance that they can put up. I mean, somewhat reluctantly, I think a lot of major law enforcement agencies that are, in fact, teaching some of the better, I'm not going to say good, but some of the better run-hide-fight, I mean, run-hide-fight classes are finally acknowledging that, yeah, you better, you better learn how to, you better learn how to put up some kind of resistance if all you have to do is throw fire extinguishers at them or spray them. But it, it, as a good buddy of mine said, spray them with the white stuff until it's empty and then beat them with a can. Hey, it's something, and you know what? We want it clear that if you go in and you're going to – if these cowards, these cowards go in and try and attack innocent people, that they're probably going to get shot and killed. Yeah, and the, the dangerous thing to me about about the typical mass shooter, most of them do not plan to survive. They come to, they come to kill and die themselves. So you've got to be – you've got to be willing to put a stop to it. And, you know, we see evidence of that. We see evidence – in almost every school shooting now where some of those kids died either trying to put up some kind of fight or shielding other people. I mean, these kids, some of these kids have what it takes to do this. And as you say, if there was some kind of training there, if we, if we train our office staff in a building, okay, in a worst case scenario, here are some of the things that can be used as weapons. Why on earth do we not do that in our schools as well? Absolutely. Man, thank you, Charles Cotton. Charles is an attorney. He's also on the board for the NRA, but he's here to talk to us, you know, in the capacity of him being an attorney and also just his experience of the Texas legislature. I want to thank you for coming out and spending your time with us on Sunday and enjoy the rest of your weekend, sir. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you having me on. Take care and have a good week. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. All right, so now we're going to bring in Lauren LeCount, and she's running for Texas Senate District 17. And let me tell you something about Lauren. Lauren is a councilwoman. She's a mayor pro tem of Richwood, Texas, and she's running against uh, Joan Huffman. So, yeah, we're going to see what Lauren brings to the to the table here, because let me tell you something about what's going on. You know, uh, news broke this week that Senator Joan Huffman, husband, has a bar. 
And in that bar, there was apparently a rape that took place. And Senator Huffman is covering this up. So, you know, and this is shocking because we're talking about the hashtag Me Too movement right now. So with the hashtag Me Too movement going on, why would someone obstruct justice like this at TABC? And so the question needs to be asked. We need to know why was an investigator for TABC fired because he brought this allegation up. Something is going on. There is something that's not smelling right here. And we need to know what's going on. And so people, you better wake up and smell the tea leaves here. Something is happening here. A lady was raped inside of a bar. This is 2018. Hashtag me too. And they're covering it up. They don't want to file a report. We haven't heard anything from uh, any state agency, the, the TABC. We didn't hear anything from the Texas Rangers. You know, something's going on and someone is covering this up. And this young lady is suffering right now. So let me bring it to the conversation. Lauren LeCount. She's running for state <laughs> senator district 17. Lauren, welcome to come and talk Hey, Michael, it's good to be here, and I'm so glad that you're having me on to discuss this because I have I, I first read about it on Friday in the Statesman, and I was like, what? You know, and my husband asked me a question. He said, Lauren, if you weren't running against her, would you have even known this was going on? And I was like, you know what? Because of the lack of media coverage that this is getting, I probably wouldn't have, even though she is my state senator. And so I reached out to Marcus. Uh, which I'll use his name. He's the TABC agent who um, was fired after um, coming forward with this whistleblower public corruption accusation against Joan Huffman for covering for her husband, Keith Lawyer's, um, you know, bar. Um, He was the president of the company, the corporation that owned this bar. And um, so what... My understanding of the story after talking to Marcus, and and I know I shared some of the information with you privately, was, so this guy's doing his job. This Marcus is doing his job. He says, oh, my God, there's been a bunch of issues at this bar. And we know in Houston, this new district attorney, she's shutting bars down left, right, and backwards in Houston over multiple offenses. And um, so this bar has had a lot of fights and disturbing of the peace. So t- t- typically that would be considered a nuisance. So this young woman, I'm going to call her Miss H um, because I don't think she needs to suffer anymore. And I don't I don't want to put her name out there like that. But I'm going to call her Miss H. Uh, was It wasn't just that she was raped. She was um, intoxicated and possibly drugged. Uh, she was in the car. She was raped in a car. And the guy had gone back into the bar looking for another victim. And this woman stumbles out of the car naked and goes to find law enforcement. She says, you know, I was raped and all this. Well, apparently the guy was no build, uh, which means that she did not even get legal justice for this rape. And I, I personally don't know, you know, I'm not on the inside of this investigation, But my concern is, was it because of where she was raped that this didn't happen when this TABC uh, agent says that they told him to delete the files, hush it up. This involves a senator. That is a company that's owned by a senator's husband. You don't investigate these matters and tells this guy to hush it up. 
Well, then his supervisor and another supervisor are now in on this public corruption. And at the end of the day, the victim is Miss H, who had this horrible, I mean, it just, it, it breaks me up even thinking to be in this position. You know, she has this horrific thing happen to her. And because of where it happened, no, no one, no one is brought to justice. The bar is not held accountable. No one is held accountable for any of this. And it, it's a tragedy. And I think four, I checked this morning, there's four newspapers who have picked up the story we have, but it's, it's just being brushed aside. And, and it shocks me because like you said, the Me Too movement should be stronger than this. It should be able to call out these acts. We know that there's a lot of hanky panky going on in our state agencies. We know that there's a lot of senators that have a lot of power over how these agencies are funded and who gets, you know, what appropriations. And this case, it strikes me as just devastating that and, and, you know, I'm a libertarian and I'm a conservative libertarian. I'm not, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, this is a liberal. No, no, I'm not a liberal. This is crazy. It is, it is appalling to me that because of where this woman had this happen, she has gotten no justice. So yeah, you're talking, I, yeah, you're talking about being drugged this out of a bar, and someone's actually definitely covering this up and deleting. You, you said deleting the files; they were told to delete the files. That's right? that's a state jail felony all in itself. Exactly, exactly. And the guy has proof. There are court documents. He is suing the. So even if even if let's say you know the guy is no build, someone is still covering this up. You know the fact that you know we're talking government records were deleted and destroyed. Someone needs to be prosecuted. Exactly. And like this really stuck out to me because when I ran for local, I was not a politician, mind you. I ran for local office because I felt like there was some hanky panky going on at my city hall and I ran to clean it up. And I told the people before me, I was like, hey, are you going to fix this or am I going to have to like, I really don't want to run, but I will. And when I found out they weren't going to, I ran and I cleaned house. I mean, um, I didn't fire anybody. Everybody retired, but the entire leadership of my city was gone in my two-year term, and we have an all-new, fresh, wonderful, amazing, transparent, open government in our city hall. And I'm proud of that. I feel like that is a that is your job as an elected official is to hold these people accountable, these bureaucrats, these people that are paid to do a job for Texans, for your city, for whoever – you hold them accountable as an elected official. This is your job is to make sure that they are doing thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of work for us because we're paying them. Absolutely. To do now, this. now, Lauren, you know, tell us a little bit about you. I'm going to find out about you and, and give us your background and what do you do? You know, what have you done bef- uh, before deciding to run for state senator? And, you know, what do you do currently? So I I'm really simple. Like I was not a politician. I own a boarding facility and doggy daycare. Dogs are my life. I've always been a volunteer. Oh my goodness. You protect the little, my little four legged friends. Exactly. And that's always been my passion. You gotta, you gotta love a person that protected little four legged friends and rescues them. And, uh, I'm married to a volunteer firefighter. So we've always been in service to the community 
And because we were in service volunteering for our community, I think that that exposed me to a lot more information about what was going on in local government and stuff like that. So this is not a paid job, city council and stuff like that. It was a volunteer job. And um, I'm, I believe firmly in, you know, the libertarian live and let live. Do not force your beliefs on other people. It's none of your business how long that person's yard is kind of thing. So I love the local level. I love being in the local level and I love making change on the local level because it's the easiest place to do it. When you talk about school districts and how they should have been arming the, the how they should have been allowing these teachers to carry and passing all these uh, approvals for teachers to carry. It's close to me. My husband is a watchdog. Dad's on guard at the school. He volunteers. He goes up there. He watches the kids walk in. He pays attention to the kids. He says nice things to kids who maybe look like they're really sad coming in that door. And that's the kind of thing that we need. We need these volunteers in the community stepping up and being willing to participate in uh, the public. Basically, nothing's going to change until we change what we're doing. And that's one of the reasons I got involved in um, Senate. We flooded two years. Um, my house and business actually flooded during Harvey. Mm. And uh, I met with Senator Huffman and she pissed me off. I'm not going to lie. I mean, she, <laughs> she sat across from me and told me, well, we know we have to protect industry in your area. And this woman lives in Houston. I'm down in Brazoria County on the coast. It just got slammed. Industry. What about the people? Exactly. We have levies to protect industry. There's no one protecting the people. And we lost businesses and homes. And some of these people in Memorial and in Brazoria County all along her district, which is the entire Brazos River, flooded three years in a row. Mm. And she's done nothing. And she literally could not have possibly cared less. And, and, and um, it's, way, a, it's a it common and, lack and, of empathy. And what people don't understand, you know, because we live up here in Austin, we don't understand that down in Houston, flooding is a common problem, you know, in Houston. Yeah, like on, on I-10, I-10 is actually a pretty common problem where all of a sudden there's a lot yeah. of rain and it floods and you will actually get washed away on Interstate 10. Yeah, and we're talking about people who've lost their entire home three years in a row. And I was a community volunteer during all these floods. The first year my husband and I and some other firefighters were out on boats pulling animals out of the water, I opened up the doors at my kennel and said, bring them. Because mm. we had no evacuation point for animals here in Brazoria County. They had, they had no time. They, the, the government did not have time to act, so I acted, and oh I said, bring them. So that means bring you, them, bring you, them, bring them. you had to be on overtime, I mean double time, and actually rescuing the four-legged babies. Right, and so I did that the first year, and when they went home, these people who had evacuated, I didn't charge them a thing. When they went home, I sent them home with bedding and bowls and food and all the things that they needed for their dog. And I remember, I, I remember that one. I remember in. that one dog that actually was going down the street, and and this dog, you know, was wandering out, and he came back, and he 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 was like miles away from his house, and he just had a bag of dog food, and he was making his way back to the house with dog food. He said, "Look, you know, yeah. and my owner doesn't have any food, but I'm gonna make sure I got some, you know, covering." So, <laughs> so he he tried his way all the way back home with a bag of dog food in his mouth. And that was kind of my thing. And then the second, the, the first year, that's what I did until the state, until the county caught up. Once the county caught up, I let them take over. And then the second year, it was devastating because these same people, this time they evacuated in time. They were getting out. They were quick because they knew what was coming, but they shouldn't have to evacuate again. And I shouldn't have to send them home with new bedding, new bowls, new everything because they're entire They lost their entire house that they had just finished rebuilding. Um, and I had to send them home with all these things again. The volunteers were great in our community. Everyone came together to lift these people up. But FEMA said, 
Second time, nope, no dice. You're not getting any help this time. And the state said, nope, no dice. We're not helping you. And I, I'm not a big spender. Volunteer, volunteer uh, contribution came together and helped these people. But it is going to be up to the legislature to act on these things. And Joan Huffman, to completely ignore her responsibilities um, to her district, to the people who are voting for her. She's just depending on us as a conservative base to keep her elected without actually doing anything to serve us. She was up in Houston lobbying for Houston when they have 13 other senators, while the rest of the district, Fort Bend and Missouri County, we had nobody working for us. Mm. And it just shocked me that she could nonchalantly not care. And it's because after I had talked to a couple of people who have, you know, worked with her for a while, this, she she knows that Missouri County votes Republican. Missouri County is always going to vote Republican. And she doesn't have to worry about earning their vote because she's going to get it as long as she's the Republican on the ticket. Mm. And when it comes to gun rights, that's another thing where I am much, I'm very um, much more, I wouldn't say Republican, but conservative. I am the libertarian on the ballot. I believe in gun rights. Lone Star um, Gun Rights actually wrote an article about the dirty tactics of Texas politicians and featured Joan Huffman because she is um, the head of state affairs. And she wouldn't even bring constitutional carry to the floor for a vote because she knew if it didn't come to the floor for a vote, she didn't have to vote against it. Mm. And she blocked um, open carry in 2015. She blocked it from the same thing. And the only, only after it came for a vote and her, her um, record on gun rights was on the line, did she vote for it? And, I mean, this woman is so, when it comes to ethics, she's so so much somebody that I'm happy to run against, even, you know, as I want to say, I don't want to say small town. I'm, I'm a councilwoman. I love the local level. I love making change on this level. But she needed an opponent. She needed someone to get in there and hit her on this stuff and hit her on what she's doing. Cause I understand the legislative process. Right. I understand that she is basic. She's blocking it without ever having to cast a vote against it. Yeah. She's not, and, she's not working at all for it. She's not working at all. She's getting it too easy. Yeah, and um, when it comes to ethics, uh, Governor Abbott had to kill his own ethics bill because she tacked on uh, amendments to the bill in the State Affairs Committee that left her husband from reporting his bars Mm. for obvious reasons. We can see now why Mm. she didn't want to have to claim her husband's bars and his financial interest on her campaign to finance report because then everyone would know that she's invested invested in other legislature le- legislators in the House and Senate and in all these bars that the TABC regulates and in all these other companies that are regulated by state agencies. Yeah, because there, there's a, a there's a lot that goes on with TABC when it comes to firearms and they're you know, they're, they're it's like they're regulating firearms. And the only people that are supposed to regulate firearms in the state of Texas is the state legislature, not TABC. Exactly. And so, yeah, we, we have a big a, a big problem with, you know, what's happening with TABC. Right. And um, it's just it's one of those things I have. I'm it's hard for me to to even get started on the um, school safety bill and all these red flag laws. It's <clears throat> because you would have to have me on like three days in a row for me to cover all <laughs> of the topics, because I am the candidate who I have range days. I'm giving away, I'm doing a gun giveaway for my campaign. Nice. Uh, you, and I mean, that's the kind of candidate I am. I have range days with my team, with other people 
you can get in and, and enter to win an AR-15. You can be involved in um, somebody does Q, I do Q&As with my constituents. Anyone who wants to ask me, what's my position on something? Well, some guy asked, do you think a felon should be able to have a Second Amendment right? And I, I'm the candidate who says yes. Um, after a certain period of time, he should be able to have his Second Amendment, he or she should be able to have their Second Amendment rights back. Absolutely. Because, because I mean, you, people- you, because you paid your debt to society. You've paid the restitution to the state. So then uh, once they free you, release you, then yes, after a certain amount of time, you should have those rights back. Exactly. Because felon system, systemically, they end up um, having trouble getting a job. They live in a poorer community. There's a higher crime rate in those communities. Who needs to be better protected than people who live in these poor communities with a high crime rate? They need to be able to protect themselves. And then what happens is these people reoffend. And when they reoffend, it's because they were in, felon in possession of a firearm. Well, they want to protect themselves. They live in an area where a lot of other people can't carry either because they're felons too. Mm. And it's appalling that we are saying that just because that at some point they committed a felony, they don't have the right to defend themselves from violence, from murder, that that Miss H, for example, from rape, mm. from things like that. People keep acting like um, the Second Amendment is something that the state gave us or the, the nation gave us or the Constitution gave us. But I don't feel that way. I am a firm believer that God gave me the right to defend myself by any means necessary from anyone who would do me harm or my three small children harm. Absolutely. God has given you the tools. It's your job to use those tools and pick them up and defend yourself. That is exactly right. And like uh, with the school safety that day that Santa Fe happened, I have friends who live. I'm down here, right? 30 minutes away from Santa Fe. Mm. A friend of mine actually called me up. He was on in route to scene because my husband's a volunteer and we, we run in that circle of people, you know, first responders and law enforcement. And he said, oh, my God. Oh, my God, Lori, it's, it's, it's a school. And so I immediately got on the phone and I was like, where's my kid? And um, I went up to the school to go pull my kid out. She's like, oh, they're at they're at a park. It's one of the last days of school. They're out having a thing. I said, where's my kid? Oh, she's at the park doing this meet and greet for the middle school. I said, who's with her? And I know all the resource officers in my town. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, don't worry. So-and-so is with them. And I was like, all right. And then I drove over there and made sure so-and-so was with them because I want to make sure that my kid is safe. Mm. And I hung out and we were off campus. So whether I, I was caring or not is none of anybody's business. But the point is that I feel personally, I live five minutes away from my kid's school. If something happened, the cops better beat me there. Because I'm going to take care of it. <laughs> I am that kind of gun owner. I'm not going to play. I, I, you know, we don't. My kids shoot. My 10-year-old shoots. She's really excited because she got her first pig. Uh, my 5-year-old shoots. She also got her first pig last year. Uh, they know guns have a purpose. And they know what happens when you fire a gun. Something dies. And they respect it. There's a lot of kids that don't, I, you know. That's not incumbent upon the child to learn how to use a gun. That's incumbent upon the parent to teach a child to respect a gun. And when we talk about having to lock these up, my concern is that at what point do parents fear taking their kids to the range and teaching them gun safety? Mm. At what point do they become kind of like prohibition? You can't have that alcohol, so now it's a novelty. You can't have that drug, now it's a novelty. Mm -hmm. And 
we're breeding a culture that, you know, it's going to be a bunch of kids who are not going to know how to use a gun, who are not going to know how to defend themselves. And nothing, and nothing, nothing, nothing good ever comes from restricting anything. Nothing good comes from prohibition. Nothing good can f- came from drugs, you know, saying, you know, uh, or alcohol, you know, we're going to ban alcohol. Nothing came good, you know, from, you know, the war on drugs. Nothing good comes from any of that stuff. So we they really can't need to legislate morality and we need more senators, more House representatives, more city council people, more got way more people on these school boards running in local elections and winning with common sense approaches to these things and not another law. A guy who's going in with pipe bombs and guns to kill children at his school because they bullied him mm. does not give two thoughts about those laws. And when Abbott, like I said earlier in the comments, Abbott came out on April 19th and said, oh, yes, oh, my goodness, all Texas schools and public junior college districts are in compliance with our recent state-required school safety and security audit. The same day, he announced a bunch more money. But the thing is, Santa Fe happened after that. So now what are they going to do? They're going to change the rules and make things a little different. And you cannot make this. You cannot legislate morality. You cannot stop someone who is intent on killing people from doing it. All you do is move the target out 50 foot from the building. Wherever you put that barrier to gunmen getting on school campuses, you've just moved the um, the, the violence and, and the death to a different location. We've got to really make we've got to do more than just make baseless laws. We have to really take action and motivate volunteers in the community and, and charity churches. We need to get well, people regulated. involved in the the improvement of the school, the school as a, as a whole, and get these parents back involved in the school, not make them go through 50 million background checks to get on campus. No, they need to be allowed to come on and help and, and counsel these kids and mentor. Like it was when, when I was young, I had a mentor in school because people got involved and they helped these at-risk children who maybe needed someone to talk to and maybe just needed someone to see them because we're spending um, $90 million a year on school testing and we're not spending that much on actually addressing individual children. And I asked, and I asked a, a school problem. teacher uh, this week, I said, you know, yeah, <laughs> does you know, do any teachers actually support the testing that we do here in Texas? And you ask, every time I ask a teacher, they say no. <laughs> none, of, none of them. I said, well, no. my goodness, did anyone ask any of the teachers what they think? You know, you know, we're <laughs> listening to Lauren LeCount, and Lauren is a Texas, she's running for Texas Senate District 17. Lauren, just so you know, is a councilwoman in Richmond, Texas, and she's also Mayor Pro Tem. And she's running for state Senate in District 17 down in South Texas. So she has a lot. She has a say about the Second Amendment. She has a very strong stance when it comes to that. So you might want to just check her out. So, Lauren, tell the people where they can find you, either on Facebook, Twitter, website, where? where? Everywhere. I'm everywhere. Um, you can go to my website at www.lovecount, L-A-C-O-U-N-T, the number 4SD17.com. You can see all my right, all my positions. You can submit questions and answers. I'm not scared of any questions. You don't have to like my answer, but if you don't, 
That's fine. At least I didn't lie. Um, <laughs> but, and then when I listen to Lauren, I hear that strong mama bear. Boy, I hear mama <laughs> bear coming out. And mama bear says, you know what? This is what we need to do. We need to protect the babies. We need to stop playing around. Let's, you know, let's let's get to what we need to do for our schools and our, and our kids. And stop, you know, stop playing this game. Yeah, I don't like politics. I don't like politicians. I feel like a lot of the problems that we have right now is because we have a whole bunch of people. We have 31 senators sitting up there thinking that they know what's best for all of these Texans. And right now it's 31 people making a decision that impacts 5 million students' lives. And I don't trust them. They've been, most of them are incumbents that have been there for a while. Obviously, they don't know what they're doing. Vote them out. Absolutely. Them hit, let them hit the road. Man, thank you, Lauren. We really appreciate you coming on today and spending your afternoon with us on a Sunday and just laying this all out for us. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. You have a great night. Absolutely. You do the same. I tell you, that's Lauren LeCount. She's running for Texas Senate District 17. And just so you know, Lauren is a councilwoman. She's also mayor pro tem in Richwood, Texas. So definitely check out Lauren LeCount. She is someone you want to watch out for, you want to take a look at, you maybe want to donate to her campaign, do something for her, because Lauren is doing some good stuff, and she's got a good head on her shoulders, because uh, there's some dirty stuff going on in that other camp, that Senator Joan, Joan Huffman. Something's going on there. Hashtag me too. Take a look at it yourself. Look at it on the Statesman. As always, more guns equals less crime. Go out and buy yourself a gun. You've been listening to Come and Talk It. With Michael Cargill. Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.